It's one of the downsides of wearing glasses. Those lights, sometimes they come right through those glasses and I can't see your faces and I, I desperately want to see your face as we uh, open the text this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. So let's turn there to Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, the title of this morning's message is Biblical Authority and Submission, the Twin Pillars of a Godly Marriage, the Role of a Wife, Part One. How's that? That that is worthy of a Puritan-style title. It's long, but every single word is important. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, we open the word of God with reverence this morning. Desperate to hear from you. We are a needy people, our Father, and we need to hear from outside the box. From our God, the creator and sustainer of all, the redeemer of our souls, the originator of marriage and family and human interaction that is so bent and twisted by sin. We pray, our Father, as we study the text this morning that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth as it is needed in each and every heart. Help us to be not hearers only who delude themselves, but doers of the word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, although we do not have any hard evidence that the Apostle Paul was ever married, There are those that suppose this, but it is merely a supposition. There is no hard evidence to that reality. From the scriptures, it's pretty clear he's not married. But from this man, through his pen, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we have someone who profoundly understood marriage and contributed significantly to the advancement of our understanding of marriage. We have the writings of a man who was steeped in the Old Testament where marriage originates in Genesis 2 who writes here to the church in the fifth chapter of Ephesians some incredibly important words. Paul profoundly understood marriage, and he understood it rightly, even though he himself most likely never experienced it. That in and of itself, by the way, is instructive. One does not have to experience everything in order to be able to speak accurately, truthfully, and helpfully to a particular topic, one need only confine themselves to the Word of God. But as we think about Paul's contribution to marriage, an example that stands out is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he addresses the topic of marriage there. And in particular, in verses 2 through 4, he speaks about the equal conjugal rights of a husband and a wife. And in doing so, he evidences the the reality is that he saw marriage and the marriage relationship as a partnership, a partnership in which the dignity and worth of both husband and wife are upheld. The husband does not have authority over his own body. His wife does. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. There is is an equal reality there. 
in that realm. That speaks of partnership. It speaks of dignity. It speaks of worth. But the equality of a partnership does not eliminate the differentiation of the roles, the responsibilities, and the authority structures within said partnership. And this is an important reality. This fact is most clearly displayed, I think, in the interaction of the members of the Trinity and in the realm of redemption. Think with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in essence, yet different in role and authority. Equal in essence, different in role and authority. For example, Jesus says in John 14 and verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. He speaks of their equality in essence. He says in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 6 and verse 38, I came to do the will of him who sent me. There he expresses the reality of a differing roles and an authority structure. The Father sent the Son. The Son is the sent one. John 15 and verse 26, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. John 16, verse 14, the Spirit's role is to glorify the Son. He takes of mine and reveals it to you, Jesus says. The role of the Spirit to glorify the Son. And then finally, Paul's text in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, where Paul explicitly writes, using the same terminology of headship and submission that, that we are looking at here, and he says the Father is the head of the Son. He is in authority over the Son. Equal in essence, differing in roles, responsibilities, and authorities. This is most illustrative and and instructive when it comes to understanding the roles of men and women in marriage. Equal and yet different. Equal and yet different. In a Christian marriage, when the husband and the wife understand and fulfill their God-given roles and responsibilities, they image the unity and diversity within the Godhead. A Christian marriage in which husband and wife understand and, and live out the roles that God has created for them images and, and instructs with regard to the unity and diversity within the Godhead. In other words, our marriages are speaking about who God is. And as we will see some weeks hence, down in verse 31, that's the way God designed it. Not an afterthought. That's the way God designed it. Now, obviously, here in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, Paul does not provide everything that a husband and a wife need to know and do in order to have a God-honoring, Christ-exalting marriage. This is not the beginning and the end of all instruction with regard to marriage. But it is impossible to have a God-honoring, Christ-exalting marriage without taking seriously and earnestly the instructions that Paul has for us in this text. 
So this is not the, the, the be-all, end-all. But it's hugely important. Foundationally important. A marriage that doesn't understand, doesn't live out, the realities here is a marriage that does not honor God, does not exalt Christ. So, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Let's begin, as the Apostle Paul does, with wives. Ladies before gentlemen. What I have for us in verses 22, 23, 24, and then picking up verse 33 to end it, are seven aspects, seven aspects of a wife's submission. Seven aspects of a wife's submission that explain, justify, and exalt this godly characteristic of Christian wives. Ladies, do not fear. I have 15 aspects <laughs> for godly men. In keeping with the Apostle Paul's relative weightiness within this passage. So, let's take a look. First aspect. A wife's submission is voluntary. A wife's submission is voluntary. This is an important reality to recognize, I think, as we begin together. That the submission that Christian wives, and, and I'll just go ahead and say this now, I don't want to keep caveating this, because God created marriage in Genesis 2 and thus wove into marriage all of this reality. It's just only able to be lived out in Christ. But submission, which is the first aspect here of a wife's duty in marriage, is a voluntary action. It's a voluntary. Now, the fact that it's voluntary doesn't make it optional. Okay? The fact that it's voluntary does not make it optional. Rather, it indicates that Christ will not force a wife to submit to her husband. Christ will not force you, ladies. Rather, instead, he will gently and lovingly lead you to this blessed condition as a gentle shepherd leads his sheep. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A gentle shepherd, wooing, calling to his sheep to come, to learn. To take his yoke, for it is not heavy or harsh, it is life. Well, how does this gentle shepherd draw his sheep? The answer is, is by his spirit working through his word. By his spirit working through his word. And so when we Speak about the first aspect here of a godly wife, submission, and note that it's voluntary. We see the reality 
expressed in verse 22. So let's zero in on verse 22 this morning, okay? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now we said that this submission that that Paul is calling for is a voluntary submission. And we can see the reality of that in a number of different ways. And so let's take a look at a couple of them. First is the grammar, grammar that Paul uses. Not a grandma, a grammar. The, The verb actually is drawn from verse 21. Verse 22 that we're looking at does not have a verb. Verse 21, it is a participle standing in here as a verb. And it is in the middle voice. And we only say that because that points to the reality that, that the, the subject is, does the action with, with reference to themselves. In other words... Um, we, we don't say that the, that the man hit the ball. We would say the man was hit, uh, hit the ball and it hit him. That kind of idea. Okay, he hit himself with the ball. That would be a better way to say it. This indicates that, 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 the, that the participle here, to, to be subject to, in the middle voice, indicates a, a voluntary reality here. It, it's an act of a free agent. The same middle voice is used down in verse 24 where it says, As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife ought to be to their husbands in everything. In other words, the the church is voluntarily subject to Christ. So wives to their husbands. So here the, the call in verse 22 to be subject to your own husbands indicates that it is a a voluntary obedience to this command. Furthermore, Paul in verse 23 provides the reason for this where he says, for the husband is the head of the wife. The the for could could be translated because. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife. Now, I've got a lot I want to say about that in a few weeks. But but one thing I do want to point out is in verse 23 here, when it says, for because the husband is the head of the wife, that, that Paul uses an indicative verb, and What that basically means is it's a statement of reality. So Paul is saying here, wives, be subject to your husbands. Why? Because your husband is your head. That's the reason that he provides. It's the headship. It's the authority of your husband. And I think it's instructive to to recognize that Paul provides or, or expects that this reason that he provides ought to be sufficient. And the reason I say that is because he doesn't provide any other reasons but a statement of reality. And he expects this statement of reality to to justify the acceptance by the wife of the role that he is calling her to in the marriage. This indicates the voluntary nature of it all. He's reasoning with the women. He's reasoning with them. He's appealing to their reason. Furthermore, we understand the call to submission to be voluntary is because there is no 
command or statement for husbands to make their wives submit to them. Nowhere do we find that. Husbands are never commanded to make your wife submit. This eliminates the justification for a whole lot of harshness and at times even brutality on the part of men towards their wives. Certain parts of the world, even within certain believing communities, this is a problem. Husbands making their wives submit. But for anyone in, engaged in that kind of behavior, it, it betrays a, a lack of understanding of the Scriptures. The important spiritual reality is the voluntary nature of a wife's submission. I mean, think about it this way. Just like God does not force us to read the Scriptures and pray, so a husband has no authority to make his wife submit. Paul appeals. He appeals to reason. When a man seeks to make his wife submit, he sins. He sins against her, and he sins against God. Furthermore, godly submission is not a natural gift or ability. There are not some wives who are naturally more submissive than others. To make a statement like that is to, to undervalue or, or to discount the work of the Spirit of God in a woman's life. Submission is a spiritual discipline that must be learned, just like all other spiritual disciplines. It must be learned. Because of that reality, that it is not a natural gift, God-honoring submission, but a spiritual discipline that must be learned, in light of that, it is something that should be modeled and taught to the younger women by the older women. And that's exactly what Paul says. If you'll turn to Hebrews, not Hebrews, I am so sorry, uh, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Not a natural gift. Not a natural ability. A spiritual discipline that has to be learned. Paul writes, verse 1, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Verse 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, 
so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In other words, there is a role here, a teaching role. Verse 4, where it says, so they may encourage the young women. The word could well be translated train. So that they may train the young women. In what? In how to love their husbands, how to love their children. How to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. It requires training. It is not a natural gift or an ability, a spiritual discipline to be acquired. Furthermore, just worth noting, I think, the plural, older women. In other words, this training and teaching is not so much a formal affair. It is something that all of the older women are to be teaching the younger women. So it's not so much about a, a single solitary Bible teacher per se. It is about the day-to-day life-on-life interaction and training as, a, as they go about their day together to learn what it means to be submissive to their own husbands. What is an older woman? Who is an older woman? Someone who has made progress in this spiritual discipline. Chronology is normally assumed, but it's not a reliable indicator necessarily. You younger ladies, find someone who demonstrates a heart and a lifestyle of submission to her husband, godly submission, and then saddle up alongside her and learn something. That's what Paul would say. Because it's a spiritual discipline that must be trained and learned, we can acknowledge as well that it's progressive and faltering, like all other spiritual disciplines. It is progressive and it is faltering just like every other fruit of the sanctification process. In other words, it's not something that you got nailed. Submission. Nailed. What's next? What it is, is it is something that we make a commitment to and then repeatedly learn as that commitment is tested, just like every other spiritual discipline. It's a lifelong process. It begins, though, with a singular commitment, a recognition that this is the will of God. Back to Ephesians 5, right? Verse 17, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the will of the Lord. And so one makes the commitment to to learn and to follow the will of the Lord. That's a a singular commitment which then bears itself out over and over and over and over again. Progressively and falteringly. In other words, good days and bad. Good situations and man, I blew that one. But the secret is to is to build success in the small things so that when the major things come, there's a a pattern of obedience. So it is with every single spiritual discipline. This one doesn't stand out any different than any others. Build a pattern of going to the Word of God in the good times, and where will you go in the bad? You will go to to the Word of God. So it's progressive and faltering. Beyond that, Because it's a spiritual discipline, it advances through prayer and the Word. It advances through prayer and the Word, both privately and publicly. This is the public side. 
There is the private side. To read and pray and think and ask for help. Because it's a spiritual discipline and not a natural gift or ability, it's an essential part of a mother's discipleship of her daughters. Raise your children, Paul will say, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is part of what that means. The expression that more is caught than taught, right? So it's that modeling it before your daughters from the earliest age. And mothers-in-law, modeling it before your daughter-in-law or daughters-in-law that they might learn from an older woman. It's progressive and faltering. It advances through prayer and the word. It's an essential part of a mother's discipline for daughters. Submission, a wife's submission is voluntary. Second aspect. Second aspect. A wife's submission is specific. It is voluntary and it is specific. Verse 22 again. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Be subject to your own husbands. The instruction here is for a wife to be subject to her own husband, not to all men generally. This is not a statement or a call to a woman's submission to all men. This is a very specific call for one woman to be in subjection to one man. And that is a very important distinction that is often lost. And it is often lost on the men. So, if you don't have a wife this morning, guys, you're out of luck. There's no woman that's called to be submissive to you. Grow up and get a wife. But wait till I finish with the 15 aspects. (laughs) Right? Man needs to count the costs. There is a place where all women, and I'll say all men for that matter, are to called to be subject to certain men. And that's within the church. And that is to the elders. Right? So Hebrews chapter 13, Paul says... Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. 1 Peter 5.5 also speaks of this. So there is a context in which the ladies are to be in subjection to someone other than their husband, but it is a very defined and narrow one, and that is the elders of the church. Other than that, one woman, one man. Now, if Paul had intended for all females to submit to all males, then he would have used those terms, male and female, like he does in Galatians 3.28. But instead, here he chooses the words husband and wife. So it's very specific to the marriage context. A wife's submission is specific, specific to your husband, to your own husband. Okay, so time for some advice for unmarried women, okay? Advice for unmarried women. This, by the way, is the kind of advice that Godly older women could and should and would be giving you. I'm going to do it this morning from the pulpit. So you ready? Here we go. 
Ladies, since Paul calls you to be submissive to one man in particular, wisdom dictates that you choose carefully who that guy is. Because once you say, I do, you did. (laughs) So, until that time, be careful. What to look for in a husband. What to look for in a husband. Well, how about starting with this? A love for God. Look for a man who has a love for God. Not God generally, undefined, but the only God who is, the triune God of the Bible. Without that, you are are marrying outside of the faith. And if you are marrying outside of the faith, There is nothing but woe to come your way. A man's willingness and ability to biblically love you will be a function of his love for God. If he does not love God, he cannot and will not love you biblically. The first thing to look for A love for God. Secondly, and closely related to it, is a submission to the Scriptures. A submission to the Scriptures. In other words, is he a man under authority? Does he understand authority? And the way he will demonstrate that he understands authority is if he himself is a man under authority, and in particular the only authority that ultimately matters, which is the Word of God. Is he a submissive to the Scripture? If he is, then there is no limit on where and how far God will take him. And when he gets out of line, the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to correct him and bring him back. Love for God. Submission to the Scriptures. Third, humility. Is he a humble man? The scriptures say God is, a, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is opposed to the proud, actively opposing the proud, but giving willingly grace to the humble. Since you are going to be attached to this man, wisdom says that you want to be in the place where you are receiving what? Grace, not the opposition of God. Is the man humble? Fourth, does he have a servant's heart? Does he have a servant's heart? In other words, does he serve others or does he seek to be served? Right? Jesus' words in in Mark 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. And give his life a ransom for many. As children of the king, we are to emulate the king. That is to be servants. Well, how do I know if he has a servant's heart? Well, here's one way. Watch how he operates in his home. And around his mother. And his sisters. If his expectation is that they exist to serve him then you have a good idea of whether he has a servant's heart or not. See, everything I'm giving you here is discernible, but not through online dating. Just saying it like it is. Does he have a strong work ethic? Does he have a strong work ethic or is he lazy? Is he a lazy man? Because when you marry a lazy man, you still must submit to him. 
and you will bear the consequences of his laziness. Is he a lazy man? Are you compatible in your personalities and intellect? I mean, this is a life partner. Will he compliment you? Or are you going to run rings around him intellectually? Will he help you grow in faith? Will he drag you down? Is he someone you want to be with? Or is he boring? These are good questions to ask. And finally here, do you share a world view? Do you have a shared world view? Do you understand how the world operates? Does he understand how the world really operates? The best way to to discern these things is to be part of the same local church. I'm just, this is just practical kind of stuff. Right? This is not thus saith the Lord. This is thus saith me. Okay? But our four children are married and they all found their spouses here. When the congregation was a lot smaller than it is now. So be of faith. Okay? So I used to say to them, it only takes one. But daddy, there's nobody here. Only has to be one. And they might walk through the door next week. All right, if you'll permit me this, ladies, let's just say this. Do not date him whom you would not marry. Do not marry him whom you hope to change. Okay? Do not date him whom you would not marry. Why? Because if the heartstrings get plucked and the affections get engaged, the head turns off. So do not date him whom you would not marry. And do not marry him whom you would hope to change. In other words, if you think, well, I'll just, you know, marry him and then I can nag him into submission. (laughs) Right? And, you know, kind of help him get over these really annoying habits. That is a recipe for disaster. Okay? Doesn't mean he won't change. Just like you will change and grow in the likeness of Christ. But don't take on a project. Okay? Don't take on a project. All right. One for the unmarried men, just to provide a little bit of balance here, a little symmetry. Okay? So if you're unmarried but marriageable, you know, or soon to be marriageable kind of guy, this is for you. Do not encourage your girlfriend or your fiancé to despise or chafe under her father's authority. Even if you think his rules are stupid or unnecessary, do not encourage her to despise his authority or chafe under his authority. And there's a very practical reason for this, and here it is. If you train her that way and you marry her, she will be under your authority and you will have trained your wife to despise and chafe under your own authority. That's a really bad idea. That is a really bad idea. And if for some reason you don't marry her, you've messed up somebody else's wife. Okay? So don't do it. Value authority. Understand authority. And submit yourself to it, even if you don't agree with it. Because you know what? Your wife's not going to agree with all of your decisions either. But she's called to submit to them. So in this context, you're called to submit to them. All right. Wife's submission is voluntary. Wife's submission is specific. Yeah, we'll go for it. A wife's submission is devotional. 
A wife's submission is devotional. Okay, third aspect. Verse 22 still. We're just in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. A wife's submission is devotional. Listen. When a woman gets married, something profound changes. Very profound. Her loyalties and authority structure shifts from her father to her husband. This is why a father hands off the bride. You know, he brings her down the aisle on his arm, gets to the front, the preacher says, who gives this woman to be married to this man, right? We're giving her away. She's being transferred, and it's even symbolic in the arm to, to the groom's arm and so forth. All of this stuff has symbolism that's rooted in Genesis chapter 2. Listen, God the Father brought Eve to Adam. So the text tells us, verse 22, he acted the part of the father. So there is this handoff of authority. Following her wedding, her, her devotion and concern is now divided between her responsibilities to her husband and her pursuit of the Lord. This is the profound change that really takes place. I mean, you can just think about it at the most practical level in terms of time commitments, right? Before marriage, a single woman has all kinds of time to devote to the things of the Lord. Following her marriage, her time commitments are divided. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 34. A woman, the woman who is unmarried and, and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be uh, holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. In other words, there's a dividing of the responsibilities and the, and the commitments. Now, it doesn't mean marriage reduces somehow a, a woman's love for the Lord and her ability to serve the Lord, but, but what changes is the mechanism through which she now does that. That's why Paul says here, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is a devotional act of spiritual discipline and obedience. Therefore, a godly wife recognizes that authority structures are from God. Romans 13, verse 1. A godly woman recognizes that authority structures are from God and that by submitting to the authority of, uh, of her husband, she, she, she submits to, did I say admits, submits to the authority of the God who stands behind it all. Okay? When she submits to her husband, she submits to the Lord, the creator of marriage. This is an act of worship, right? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. When you submit to him, you are submitting to the Lord. That's, a, that's an act of worship. A godly wife understands authority, understands submission, recognizes it's an expression of, of divine order, not a statement about human worth. A godly woman understands that she has been made in the image of God. And she bears the image of God every bit as much as a man does. There's no hierarchy here. No first place, no greater, no lesser. Equal in worth before God, but different in role. And understanding that a godly wife doesn't chafe under the role that God has created for her. She embraces it. She embraces it. And finally, uh, a godly wife grieves when through sinful self-interest she fails or falls short in this area of her spiritual life. When a wife fails to submit, a godly wife, it grieves her. It grieves her. And she goes before her Lord 
to seek his, his forgiveness. She goes to her husband and asks his forgiveness. If it was publicly done, she goes to all the public figures that, that witnessed it and asked their forgiveness. If it was done before the children, she asked their forgiveness. Public sin required public confession. Private sin, private confession. She finds the cleansing in the gospel, the strength to go on, and the recognition of her need for the gospel because sin lies always close at hand. So what have we learned so far, beloved? What have we learned so far? Simply this. A wife's godly submission is voluntary, it is specific, and it is devotional. Come back next week, and we'll flush out the rest. Father, there is more than enough here. And I pray as a man first that I would take this to heart for by application there are lessons for me with regard to the authority figures in my life. There are none of us that are not under authority in some level in some sense. And I pray that you would help me as a man to think upon these things and to learn from them, be instructed by them and look at the model of Christ and and thus exercise my authority in a gentle, compassionate, shepherdly fashion. And I pray for the ladies here. I pray for those who are married. And I pray, Father, that you would renew in them a passion to love Christ and to demonstrate the love of Christ by their own growth and submission. They would not see it as a, as a burden to be carried, as a duty to be extinguished, but as a delight. And for the unmarried among us, Father, I pray that these words would be instructional for them, particularly those who are coming of age. May you help them to think wisely in a world of foolishness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.